Welcome to Leaning In and Speaking Out, a Research Connection podcast. This is a podcast from Brandon University's Centre for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies, or BU Cares. Every episode, we connect with a researcher and a community member around a topic of interest. We want to model how research connects with the broader community and highlight the knowledge that both researchers and community members bring to the table. All right, so welcome everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Today's podcast episode is a conversation about sexual exploitation and sexual violence. And it's a difficult conversation, but an important one. And so I thought we'd begin just by introducing ourselves. Carolyn, you're in my top left. Do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, my name is Carolyn Blaine, and I am social worker in the Brandon School Division. Um, I am at uh, Prairie Hope High School, formerly Nealon High School off campus, um, working uh, um, in it's an alternative education um, schooling. And we have a number of really, really amazing students that, that attend here and work with that I get to work with. So I really love my job. Hi, I'm Candice Waddell-Henowich, and I'm an associate professor in the Faculty of Health Studies. Um, I teach in the Department of Psychiatric Nursing program and the Masters of Psychiatric Nursing program, um, and I'm also a registered psychiatric nurse. Well, welcome to the podcast. I'm Jackie Kirk, and I work in the Department of Leadership and Educational Administration, and I'm the co-host of the podcast. And so we're really excited to have you here today for the conversation. Um, it's a hard conversation, but I think it's such an important one to be having. Uh, we need to address that issue in our communities. And I'm Michelle Lamb. I'm the other co-host of the podcast. And I'm the director of BU Cares, which is a research center focused on Indigenous and rural education. We're here in the Faculty of Education at Brandon University. And so welcome. And I think it might be a good way to dive into the conversation just by clarifying the terms that we're going to be using. And so I wondered if we could maybe begin by talking about what is the difference between sexual exploitation and sexual violence and what kinds of terminology we might be using. You know, that that in and of itself, Michelle, is actually an interesting, um, it's an interesting question. And one of the things that we, that I think that we've discovered over, or I shouldn't say we, I've discovered over the course of time, um, and particularly when we did the Sexually Exploited Children and Youth Roundtable Forum back in uh, November of 2017, is, is that the definition seems to vary depending on the um, sort of the lens that you're looking at it through from your agency, from an agency perspective, from a justice perspective, from a victim's perspective. Um, so, and I, and I know that that was kind of one of the number one um, concerns probably that was addressed. And I think that we continue to address um, is, is there isn't a nice, neat, tidy, I mean, there is, there is, there is nice, neat, tidy definitions, but they vary depending on who's defining them. <laughs> so it, it's not like the Webster dictionary says this, right? And this is what it is. And so I think that that is part of what makes this interesting as well as um, a challenge, right? So um, like, for example, the definition that, that I pulled was from the, um, the United Nations um, Office on Drugs and Crime. 
Um, and human, it says that human trafficking is the recruitment, transportation, control, direction, or influence of a person to exploit them for labor or for sexual purposes. Sexual exploitation is the most common form of human trafficking, and it often involves the exchange of, of sex for food, shelter, drugs, alcohol, money, or approval. So, I mean, good definition, but again, you can see the, there's a lot of interpretation. There's a lot of holes in that. There's a lot of, what does that, that even really mean to people who don't necessarily work within, within this world, right? So it, that was one of the biggest challenges that we had voiced to us when we, like I said, when we held that forum in 2017 was just, uh, it's, it, it very much differs and it very much varies and understanding is different. That's a great start, Carolyn. So I might just continue and talk a little bit more broadly about sexual violence. Because um, the, the definition that I use in my work for sexual violence is a really over-encompassing definition. And the reason for that is that over the years, there's been a lot of dichotomy between what rape is and what sexual violence is. And, and there's a lot of um, uh, un unknowing for victims as to how they're supposed to be able to define what they've been able, what they've been going through or what they've had to experience. So the definition that I usually use is the World Health Organization definition that describes sexual violence as any act or any sexual act that, uh, that's unwanted by the victim. So this includes sexual exploitation. Um, it also includes rape, attempted rape, such sexual assault, intimidation, coercion, um, a new term called stealthing, and then also sexual harassment. So the reason that I use this very broad definition is that all types of sexualized violence, gender-based violence need to be recognized and victims need to know what, what, they're, what they can talk about when they have been victimized. Um, so I don't know if you guys have heard the term stealthing before. This is a, no. this is a newer term. Um, and I think it's, it's very interesting in the way that stealthing is used because stealthing is actually an act of sexual violence where a couple decides on parameters of consent. And usually this involves the use of a condom or other type of protection. And then during the act, um, the condom is either removed or destroyed. And so this is a form of sexual violence because that wasn't what was consented to when the sexual act began. So this is also important um, for people to realize because of a lot of victims know that they've been harmed, but they don't know how to name that harm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. I read just recently a, a very recently released study. It's based out of the UK. I think the main researcher's name is Jessica Taylor. I'll double check that. But uh, this was a huge study, like 22,000 respondents and um, one out of two had been asleep in their relationship. You're nodding, Candice, have you seen this come out? Um, one out of two people in relationships had woken up with their partner um, performing sex acts on them while they were asleep. So I think that is rewiring, you know, you would know in that situation, maybe that wasn't something that you desired or wanted, you we were asleep, how could you consent? But um, I think there's, it is kind of rewiring people's thinking like, oh, I was, a, you, you don't necessarily use the language of assault or the language of victimization in that kind of scenario. You just think, oh, I don't really like that, right? So I've been reading some of the responses to this study on social media and there's a lot of that kind of rewiring like, oh, I didn't know that that was, you know, somebody said, I just thought it was part of life. 
And um, so I, I, I totally understand the need for those kinds of definitions. I just thought I'd bring that into the conversation because I was just reading about that very recently. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and particularly when it's an intimate partner, right? When, when you know, whether it be, you know, relationship, a marriage, whatever, we, we think that because it's an intimate partner whom we trust and we love and all of those kinds of things, that that makes that okay, right? And, and long path, like, thankfully, we have come to a place and a time in our discussions and our conversations um, where that is a much more open conversation, right? And so not that that makes it easier for people to necessarily disclose, um, but it, it just, it, by shining a light on that, people get the, the different understanding that that's not okay. Consent is consent regardless of your relationship with that person, right? Yeah, and that kind of leads us well into my next question, which was sort of from that community perspective, and maybe Candice, this would be a good one for you. Um, what are some of those trends that you're seeing in regards to sexual violence and thinking things like hashtags, things like that? So do you want to take that question, Candice? Yeah, for sure. So um, I really appreciate that you said hashtag because there is this new movement that is entitled hashtag feminism. that's really trying to get into the crooks of what's actually happening with people and what's actually happening in, in the broad world. And I mean, I think probably everybody's aware of pound me too. That was a, or hashtag me too. I, I'm showing my old school here calling it pound me too. <laughs> but um, we, we're, I'm sure we're all aware of that movement because when it did come out, there was a lot of emphasis on the me too. But there's also been one that's called not okay. And there's also been one called being raped, never reported. And so all three of these different hashtag feminism movements, although they had their own kind of emphasis and their own um, trajectory of how they went through the process, uh, there was a lot of individuals that came forward within that time that realized that they had been a victim of sexual violence. And although they knew something had been wrong, they had never named it. They'd never reported it. They'd never discussed it. Um, and all those movements also started to start the conversation around what is sexual violence, um, how do we process it, how do we name it, and then also how do we disclose it or when do we disclose. Mm-hmm. So the delayed act of disclosure, um, and there's a lot of research been done since that time on this delayed act of disclosure and, and what that actually means. Because while you're reading someone else's story and you're having that moment of reflection that says, oh, wow, that was me. Um, That can sometimes be quite affirming for people, but it also can be quite traumatizing for people. So it's this new way of trying to process our own experience and label our own experiences. Um, And then there's also this kind of second issue that's going on currently that's, that's kind of outside of the hashtag feminism movements, but that's simply what's going on with COVID-19 and with the acts of Uh, stay-at-home orders that we have within the pandemic. I mean, that in itself is causing this new wave of sexual violence and sexual violence experiences to occur. We're seeing that um, the acts of interpersonal violence are increasing, domestic violence incidences are increasing, and sexual violence is increasing. So it's becoming even more apparent that at this point in time, we start to really have the discussions about what is supportive when people are disclosing and what is detrimental. Maybe from a school perspective, Carolyn, um, you could talk about uh, sexually exploited youth and what some of the trends are you're seeing in regards to sexual exploitation in your school setting. Um, I guess one of the 
I've now worked in this community for uh, 24 years, starting in child welfare and then moving to the school division. And I shudder actually now at some of the, um, we didn't talk about this. We did, we did not talk about children and youth, um, even necessarily in a child welfare perspective. It just wasn't something that we really voiced and talked a lot about with our families, with as colleagues. Um, you know, the overt obvious, yes. But what we, I'm just, I'm, I'm astounded by how far we've come and yet we still have a long ways to go. <laughs> um, but what, what was really um, sort of telling for me when, and it was, again, it was back in, it was 2016 and I was speaking with a young, young woman um, and what I was um shocked about when she was explaining to me a, a, a situation that had arised was she was being sexually exploited and when I asked her that when I pointed out what sexual exploitation was and asked her if she recognized that that's what was occurring for her she completely did not have any idea that that's what was happening and I mean of course she didn't I mean I, <laughs> you know but that's when we began the discussions here, um, just how important and the role that we play in school systems. We're those frontline people that lots of our younger students and our teenage students are coming to. And it, it, we just knew we had to, that there had to be further information. So that's when we embarked in the partnership with Brandon University and Brandon School Division for that, um, for the Sexually Exploited Children and Youth Roundtable. And when, sort of when we had those conversations, like I said earlier, it was quite astounding to me that the number of people at the, you know, at, the, at that and since um, that I've spoke to, we don't necessarily think this happens in Brandon. Um, we think we're small. Um, the number of people, I can even think of just about my own friendship conversations that I have from time to time. Um, just regarding what sexual exploitation is, and everyone is like, well, they're prostitutes. No, <laughs> no, they're not. And trying to have that, again, that um, definition and that conversation with people who don't live and work in this world, right? Um, they work in a completely different industry and just don't even see that this is happening and how important it is for us to ensure that that knowledge is being widespread, right? The hotel industry, the airline industry, the transportation industry in general, the, you know, all of those kinds of places, we need everyone to be educated so that they can understand what is happening sometimes right underneath their noses, right? Um, so what we, what we really have noticed here, like within the education system, I would say, um, and unfortunately in Brandon is the massive increase in specifically crystal meth use, um, but drug use in general, but the massive increase in crystal meth has really, really um, impacted our youth and beyond for sure. Um, but that simple act of someone you know, are we, particularly children in care um, and or those kids who are living, um, have had a number of experiences in their life, traumatic experiences in their life. They're not connected um, necessarily to another healthy adult. 
Um, and so they're looking for that connection. We are meant, we are wired to be connected to people. Some of us more than others, for sure, but we are wired to be connected. And so when we don't have that connection, we're looking for it, however that might come, right? So for some of our children and our youth, they're finding a group that accepts them for the first time. They're finding an individual who knows exactly um, what they've experienced and lived. They feel safe to be able to tell them their experience because it's more um, acceptable to that person because they're living a similar story, right? And so that, that real need and look for um, being accepted and connected is just, is so, so powerful. And I think, I think we know that but we underestimate the power of that connection, right? And so then, you know, you couple on, you couple poverty, you couple a pandemic where yes, our kids are coming to school, but yes, our kids are staying at home more now than ever before. Um, so then they're forced to their iPhones, tablets, whatever social media um, 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 they have, right? And so people can hide behind screens and people can say things that they wouldn't normally say. And, and kids in general, especially younger kids, we, we expect them to be more knowledgeable than they are, right? And so then when they're um, behind these screens, they feel like they can, you know, they can say these things or they can hear these things and they don't actually necessarily understand what the conversation is that's even happening, leading to that grooming, right? And so, and it's behind a screen and yet, and, and I am being accepted for the first time. And this feels nice because someone is being kind to me. Someone is offering to, you know, purchase me a winter jacket because I don't have one, right? I'm hungry. I'm really hungry. I got no food in my cupboard. And they're offering to take me out for, you know, take me to somewhere and have something to eat or whatever. And it starts small and it starts simple. But then it becomes that real, um, you know, then they, they start offering, you know, the drugs. And I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I have no research or science before, behind this, <laughs> but I don't think people are offering directly first time crystal meth, right? It's a slow and gradual um increase to those things where they slowly get you dependent on them right and then that and, and then you're down a rabbit hole you can't get out of right we know we certainly know lots about the ACE studies and the, the adverse childhood effects and the number of um the, the number of, of things that our kids are walking into our school buildings with from home and community, right? And so then there is all of those things that they're walking into a school building that they have on their plate already before they're even coming in to begin their education. And so trying to, and we know, I mean, the, the ACE study tells us that the more um, of, of the effects that you have, the more experiences, negative experiences that you have, the greater your, your increase in all kinds of negative things all the way into adulthood, right? That what you're experiencing as a five-year-old is going to affect you when you're 55 years old, right? So there's, it's, it's a, it's important that, I mean, I'm a preacher of, of our schools and our, and our systems being um, trauma-informed. We have to understand what trauma means. We have to be able to have those conversations. We have to be able to help our community and our families understand that 
so that then we can kind of work together to make some of that, make some of that difference, right? And only until then can we help the kids in our schools, right? They can't come to school and learn grade four math or grade 10 math if they've got the, a very full plate of everything else that's happening. And these kids tend to leave school, right? They tend to, there's huge gaps in their academic learning. So then, you know, you come to grade nine and you've missed, you know, you haven't been in school since grade six. You've had some, you've had, you know, yeah, you've been registered in a school and yeah, you've attended a few days here and there, but not enough to be able to take your education. And then you get to grade nine. It's like, now I just don't even want to go because I'm, I feel like I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I'm scared. I'm worried. People are going to judge me. You know, all of those, all of those shaming and blaming things and guilt that we have for ourselves, And so then that pushes them out into the street even more. And again, looking for that acceptance even more from places where it's not the right acceptance. It's not the right connection. Those people who would say, maybe this is your friend group or people in the community who would say, well, we're Brandon, we're so small, it doesn't happen here. What would you say to people like that who just haven't seen this part of Brandon before? Well, I can't really repeat what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know what I tell them that it's really, really important because of course, most of, most of the people who say this to me have, are, are, have children of their own, right? Um, that it is happening in our tiniest of rural communities. And it is really, really important that you understand what, the, what this means, because this can be my children. This could be, uh, my kids, our, our own children may not have experienced one kind of negative um, traumatic event in their life. And this, this could still happen, right? That you, we always, we hear every day of, you know, friends joining the, connecting with a wrong friend group. Um, and, and so it, it can happen every day. So the fact that you think that it isn't happening means you really, really have to understand what is happening because you need to be having these conversations with your teenage children. Well, and especially when we apply the more global definition of sexual violence, right? Yeah. Then we see that it's happening in a lot of places that they're not prostitutes. Yeah. Um, well, and the other, the other interesting piece to that, Jackie, is that, I mean, we know now that our kids are seeing, are, are exposed to and seeing more on social media than any of us ever and to this day, maybe haven't even seen, right? And and yes, I know that we have, that parents think they always know. I'm one of them that think they always know what their kids are looking at. No, we don't. No, we don't. And so we have to understand what that, the influence that that has on us, because then they see that to be the normal, right? So we, you know, that definition of, of finding out what just good sexual health means versus what they're seeing on a tablet or hearing from a friend who's sharing it from a tablet is very, very, very different. <laughs> I went, I think I've, I've read that report from the Sexually Exploited Children and Youth Roundtable. And I, I remember reading about the need for some really clear definitions there was also something, if I'm remembering correctly, about the ages at which this kind of grooming that you mentioned starts. I wonder, do we want to talk a little bit about that process and how it's not always that kind of 
stereotypical pathway. There are many ways that children can fall into this. Do you want to talk about that, Carolyn? I mean, I don't exactly remember the ages myself either from the from the actual report, but I do remember be feeling sick that because I actually um, it was much younger than I had actually like I want to say it was like grade two. Yeah, it was younger um, than I remembered. I yeah, remember. and and just how I mean, one of the things that I I also remember us talking about very clearly was particularly when you if you're being exploited by a family member, right? Which is which is very real. Um, but again, kids don't, kids don't recognize, like if, if, if this is coming from my family, it has to be okay, right? Because it, especially the younger that they are, they don't know the difference. You're, you're taking the guidance of your family member or family members, and you, you think that that's what, how things are supposed to be, right? Um, and so that that the younger particularly in family but even even in our school settings right we again because kids can hide behind social media you can say you're 10 when you're 40 right and no one's no one knows any no one knows any difference so I think that that is the the scarier part and why we now have to start these conversations much much earlier um, in schools, but in their families, um, you know, as well. And I, I do remember that conversation um, from, from the roundtable as well, that there, we need to have more education pushed out to our families and in their homes, because this can't just come from school, right? We can talk about it at school, yeah. we can support at school, but, but it's got to be at home where our, where our families are, who may have been victims themselves, and don't necessarily understand or have that sort of that baseline of what is okay and what isn't, right? Because I mean that that's a that's very much a reality, and and particularly parents who are living and have lived through extensive trauma, they need the help to be able to have these conversations with their kids. I mean, if you were a victim of sexual violence. Um, you don't, it's an uncomfortable, sometimes, not always, but it, it's a, it's a more uncomfortable conversation to have with your children because it triggers your own stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so being able to have those conversations at that younger age is harder for a lot of families. And of course, you'll have families who are like, oh, they're just way too young. Like they don't understand any of this. Well, nah, -uh, that's not the case anymore, right? Our, our kids are having these conversations younger and younger. Might be a good segue into talking about some resources at the community level because it does need to be that kind of broad um, education beyond school. So Candace, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about any resources that we could share with our listeners. Yeah, I might start with just some some recent research that I've that I've concluded or that I've been working on, and that's kind of the segue to this is kind of one, some of those ways that we as the public can respond when we're hearing about sexual violence disclosures. Cause I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. Um, so when, when Me Too first started, I started my PhD research, which was interviewing individuals that identify as women who experienced sexual violence in university or college. Um, and the purpose of this was, try to, was trying to determine if there is a long-term impact to this type of violence when it happens later in life, because as Carolyn was saying, we have a lot of research that talks about the ACEs in younger childhood, but we don't have a lot of stuff that talks about 
well, what if you're an 18 year old or a 20 year old or a 25 year old that's experiencing some of this violence for the first time? Um, and the other, other thing to try to figure out within this research was just how individuals cope through or cope past this type of violence. And mm -hmm. the one resounding narrative that I heard from all of my participants was that they didn't think that they were going to be believed. And so they didn't talk about it. And it was that idea just that they needed to find someone that would believe them. Um, so I think we often tie sexual violence into uh, the judicial system, the criminal system, those other systems that they don't necessarily need to be attached to. If someone's coming with you at a point in time with an experience of their own sexual violence, the most important thing that you can do as an individual is believe them. Obviously, in the case of children, that's different because there is legalities around that type of disclosure. But for adults, they really need to find someone that believes them. And, and my, my participants also talked about this idea of seeking out someone until they did find that person that would believe them because it was sometimes not the first person. Um, and the reasons for that was kind of wrapped into the rape myth that exists in society, like we were talking about earlier, like your husband can't rape you, you can't be sexually violated by your friend, all of those kind of rape myths that still exist today. Um, so that was the most important thing was to be believed. Um, and then searching out someone until you could find believing and then providing autonomy. So again, this is very much geared towards the adult population um, because there are the legalities around children's disclosures. But for adults, it was, it was really, they wanted control over what happened next. They wanted to be the ones to decide what was going to, they wanted to figure out what resources they needed. Mm -hmm. um, they'd already had their autonomy taken away within the sexual violence experience itself. So they wanted to be in control of how they worked through it or how they coped past it. Um, so those were some of the things that they talked about. And I think it's important to have those conversations because we really need as society to start figuring out how to respond to disclosures, delayed disclosures, um, and how to talk through some of these issues because there are still a lot of uh, things that are left unsaid. Mm -hmm. um, for more immediate situations, we have a lot of resources within community. There's Clinic with a K. Um, that's a 24 hour, seven day a week crisis line that's there to support anybody who needs to talk. And it's actually a sexual assault crisis line. So even in what, it doesn't matter what type of sexual violence experience you've experience, that's a line that you can reach out to. And in Brandon specifically, we have the Women's Resource Center, the YWCA, Westman, Westman Crisis Services, um, which includes the Mobile Crisis Unit. And then there's also through the university, there's the Sexual Violence Education Prevention Coordinator, and then also student services, personal counselors. So there's a lot of different resources out there. The most important thing is that if a person feels that they are um, in an, um, had an experience of sexual violence, or they're trying to cope through a delayed disclosure that they've just um, realized that has happened to them, that they really need to find someone to talk to. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a formal service. It can just be anybody, anybody that they trust, anybody that will listen to them, anyone that they feel that they will believed by. So then if you're the person who hears the disclosure, um, you should, just make sure that you confirm that you believe their story. Yeah. Um, I remember as a young teacher, my very first teaching position, and I had a child disclose to me that her parent was sexually abusing her. And I was 20. Like, I was really ill-equipped. Nobody had ever talked to me about what I was going to do in that situation. 
And so I went to the principal and the principal said, don't say anything to anybody. And so instead I went home and cried every day about it. Um, but I, I feel guilty forever that I let that little girl down. Um, but, and so I think, you know, I think about, you know, Carolyn talking to our young pre-service teachers and giving them some tools and support um, to be able to have those conversations, to know that you have a duty to call, right? Like it shouldn't be the first time you hear that information when you start trying to figure out what to do about the disclosure that you just heard. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. For sharing that, Jackie, <clears throat> and that that reminded me of a question I had wanted to ask, and that was, um, what are some signs that teachers can be on the lookout for, or administrators can be watching for, for children or youth, or even it might be adults that are in schools still. You know, what what are some things that need to be on our radar as educators? Um. I think exactly what Candace said, um, particularly younger, you need to believe like, regardless of the, often these kids are, have, have other behaviors that they're displaying in the school. Um, and I shouldn't say often, I, you know, some, some of them are sitting in the very back of the classroom, not wanting to be seen at all. They're trying to just blend in and don't want any attention whatsoever. And you got the next one, you know, displaying all kinds of challenging behaviors. And we focus on the behavior as opposed to what is being said. Right. And so it is absolutely critical. And I mean, I understand. Well, I don't understand because I'm not a teacher, but you've got particularly in our younger years, you've got classrooms of 20 and 25 people and you've got you're managing behaviors and you're you're you can only you can only take in what you can take in. Right. Um, but when you see or hear a change in that person's um, kind of baseline behavior um, and hearing their words and believing them is regardless of what the tale is, regardless of how, um, of what they're saying to you, it is not your place in that moment in time to, to determine, it. did this really happen? What, what do you, you're not, this isn't an investigation. You've got a child, a teenager and an adult that just needs you to listen and to be heard, right? And I mean, in our school settings, depending again on the relationship that that, that teacher has, and you know, that they may, might know that they're connected to one of their, um, to the social worker within their school and the social worker is there. You know, you can say, the teachers can say, you know what, that sounds like a conversation we might wanna talk to Miss Blaine about. Let's go and have a, let's go and have a conversation with her, you know? So that those pieces can can occur, because sometimes telling and retelling and retelling and retelling and retelling <laughs> that story can be can be really really um, difficult. So again, I, I I think that it doesn't regardless it's, it's regardless of the age. You you just if you have somewhat of a relationship with your students, you know your gut tells you when something is not right, and trust it, right. Um, and, and do what you need to do with that as far as whom you're going to um, reach out to. You know, Jackie, you didn't know at the time that, that going to your principal and him saying, don't say anything, you didn't even have to go to him. No. Right? You didn't right. even. I know he, that now. And, you know, exactly. In my career, I've had different people disclose different types of abuse to me. 
And it's the only one that I've really had a huge failure with was that first little person. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wear her forever, right? Mm -hmm. This topic always touches that part of my heart because she's the person that I failed. Um, I just didn't know. Yeah, and, and you didn't fail her entire right like you you were if I mean there's the perfect that's the perfect example of the importance of our pre-service teachers understanding and knowing our daycare providers I mean we have to know these things right we we there is there's more than just the the role of you know yes there's the Manitoba education curriculum yeah we got to know that but there's a lot of other pieces we have to know outside of that that then we know how to manage and handle these things so, uh, yeah, <laughs> I could go on. <laughs> well, and along those lines, I know that in, in the research that I was doing, there was some common messaging that I gave to a lot of the victims that I was talking to or the survivors that I was talking to. And I think that it's very common messaging that any educator, any community member could think about. And that is that um, sexual violence is never the individual's fault, ever, ever. There's nothing in it that's that individual's fault. Yeah. Um, whatever their reaction is, that's a completely normal reaction. So it doesn't matter what their reaction to the situation is, it is a normal reaction because sexual violence is complicated and reactions are complicated and personal understandings of situations like this are complicated. Um, the, the kind of to remember that many people don't talk, tell anyone for years, um, but that if you can get them to talk, it is very helpful to get them to talk about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, that most perpetrators are known to their victims. That's another thing that people should always remember, that it's not a stranger in the back alley the majority of the time. It's someone that's known. And that individuals that have experienced this type of violence should and are never alone, and that there's always someone out there to support them. And that's one of those things that you, you want to have as constant messaging as well. And if you think about those kind of key themes or those key identities or key key ideas, then any situation that you get in where you are being disclosed to, um, you can respond in a very empathetic manner because you have those kind of key ideas in the back of your head. Thank you all so much. You are so knowledgeable about this topic and I think it's so important that we do this kind of knowledge mobilization so that we can be prepared. And um, I, I, that was it for my questions, but if anyone has anything else they want to share, please go ahead. Um, the only thing that I would, one piece that I would add is just re, um, regarding, it's specific to, for us here in Brandon, is that third party reporting. Um, that is another, that is an option. It's a newer option. Like I want to say in the last three years that um, the Women's Resource Centre and John Howard Society each have someone, um, a counsellor there who we can, who th can receive third party reports. So that is, um, third party reports don't have to go to police, but it is an opportunity to be able to share, right? And to be able to, and often that is sometimes what, um, that's what holds victims back from reporting is because they don't want to have anything to do with the justice system side of it um and so they so they hold it right and so that third party reporting i think is really really um really important for us to to know and understand here in our own in our own city um and the other thing candace's um all of those and then i would just add that there's the there's a kids help phone as well that can do the under the under 18 the clinic with a k is huh, an amazing resource 
Um, but the Kids Helpline is another another really um, another another really great resource for us here. So, yeah. Third party reporting is that anonymous, or do people need to attach their names? Um, do they need to? I do believe you attach your name. Now, sorry, I've got it right here in front of me. Um, it's an option for, sur for survivors of any gender who may not otherwise report a sexual assault to police. For some, third-party reporting can facilitate post-sexual assault healing processes as a, as a reporting option to help survivors feel empowered and in control of what happens next. The agency receiving the third-party reporting will also offer support and other types of assistance. So my understanding, and don't quote me on this, even though this we're recording. This is just I'm curious. We can come. Um, <laughs> so my understanding is, is that information can be shared. So the third-party counselor can share information with police regarding the, the offender. Um, so that that information is is held within their system, but the 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 victim does not have to be identified. Do you know, yeah. Candace? That's what, that's what I thought too, but I don't know. No, I, I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Um, the, I know that the majority of victims don't report because you know the the judicial system is considered to be a second rape. But um, yes. so I do know that third party yeah. reporting is talked about as as a as a valuable. Um, resource for that but mm -hmm. I just I don't know I don't know how it works if they actually do go to court or if they actually do get charged I don't know if that anonymity still exists I have no idea yeah I'm not sure either um and you know who is um Kim Uwasik from the Women's Resource Center and Michelle Funk from John Howard Society are the two um counselors for for the third party reporting so they would be for sure your best your best resource um yeah we could look into that and put it into our outro piece, Michelle. Yeah, that's a good idea. I think mm -hmm. it is really important to know, like, if you have been a victim, what your options are. And so, it, especially during COVID too, like, can I send an email? People might be thinking, you know, does that mean mm -hmm. I need to go in person? Like, just knowing what it's going to be like, I think reduces some of that anxiety. So absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you all so much for this conversation. I think it's been really informative and hopefully really useful to people in education and beyond in our community. And so thank you for your time and your expertise. It's been a good conversation. You know what, can I say one other thing that I should have said at the very, very beginning? Um, that that I, I, and I don't think we planned this because I know we were randomly finding dates, but do we know that today, May the 5th, is the National Awareness Day of Missing and Murdered? Yeah, <laughs> I got mine on too, my red shirt. Um, the uh, National Awareness Day of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls and Two Spirits, also known as the Red Dress Day. So it's kind of, um, I would say it's a timely day to have this conversation as well. So Absolutely. I saw that this morning. We could, I yeah, we may want to be able to put that in the beginning in, in some way, but yeah. Thank you, both of you. Thanks awesome. for joining us. That It has been a good conversation and good to come back to some of those pieces and think about them again. Mm -hmm.